Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine. And my guest this week is James Thompson, owner of two significant Edinburgh institutions when it comes to hospitality in the city, The Witchery and Preston Field House. I went along to Preston Field to meet him a few weeks back and we spoke about his life growing up in Edinburgh, the inspiration he took from the theatre and the arts in building his businesses and following his passion. I started washing dishes in a in a old-fashioned tea room um, in Edinburgh when I was 12 years old to make some pocket money and I... Um, Loved the theatre and the drama and all the action that was going on in this old tea room and just the sense of theatres. How the city and industry has changed. When I started, it was 10 o'clock licensing hours and you couldn't get a drink on a Sunday. We didn't have a conference centre, we didn't have all the theatres and uh, wonderful galleries and museums that the city has now and the tourism industry was really three months a year. As well as finding out about his own preferences for eating and drinking in Scotland. And I'm some spoiled for choice in Scotland, really. And there's so many wonderful places that I'm really looking forward to getting back and getting some time to actually travel around Scotland again. I'm joined today by James Thompson, the owner of Prestonfield House and The Witchery in Edinburgh. Hi, James. Hello, how are you? Fine, how are you? Good, thank you. So for anyone that doesn't know, could we just go right back to the start and um, how did you come to own both of these pretty iconic venues? Well, I suppose um, at school, I always loved history, art and drama and I used to gaze out the classroom window at Edinburgh Castle on the old town and I've always been a hopeless romantic and uh, I was kind of imagining all the people that had passed through the the buildings, the castle and the Royal Mile over the years and um, I started washing dishes in a in a old-fashioned tea room um, in Edinburgh when I was 12 years old to make some pocket money and I um, loved the theatre and the drama and all the action that was going on in this old tea room um, and uh, just the sense of theatre so although I loved theatre um, and drama and art um, at school I actually preferred doing, um, I was doing the props, I hated being on stage, but I loved doing stage design. At school I was described as a dreamer, so I, um, I, I think I probably, because I kind of knew what I wanted to do in life, uh, going to hospitality and creating my own places, I suppose I was just dreaming about what I could create and um, my career over the time, my father was horrified when I said I wanted to go into hospitality because he'd sent me to a private school in Edinburgh, 
spent a lot of money on fees and my education and wanted me to be a, a lawyer or a doctor um, or a, have a proper job as he saw it and he kind of saw hospitality as being a bit of a dead end job. 40 odd years ago it was um, quite a hard profession and uh, it didn't have the kudos that it has today with all the celebrity chefs and cooking programmes and everything else so um, it was a bit of a battle to kind of persuade him that um, I uh, wanted to pursue my career in hospitality so I was when at 17 I was sent to Jersey my father had a friend who knew somebody had a hotel in Jersey and my school holidays I worked over there and my father thought that would kind of sicken me and put me off hospitality the long hours and hard work and things but it was quite the opposite and uh, I came back and went to college and did a course trains the basics of chef and management and things and I started my own outside catering business when I was 18 years old doing my friends 18th birthdays parties from home and uh, from that I kind of built a wee bit of money and and I applied for a job to open a restaurant in the Royal Mile. Then um, I ended up buying them out and opening the witchery when I was 20 years old. So um, it just kind of was organic and lots of hard work kind of paid off. And I took out three personal loans to try and um, open the restaurant. And I was a chef with three staff and it kind of grew from there. So, I mean, that's quite a young age. Was that quite sort of a big achievement at the time or, or was it? Well, it was, I mean, for me, I didn't really, I just took the opportunity, I suppose. You know, I had the opportunity to, to buy the, the property. And uh, in those days, it was 10 o'clock licensing hours and there was no drink on a Sunday unless you stayed in a hotel. And it's very different days in Edinburgh. So we didn't really have the, the tourism season was kind of June, July and August. Um, perhaps we didn't have the Hockmanay parties, the Christmas parties that we have now. Um, we didn't have a conference centre, we didn't have festival theatre, we didn't have all the wonderful things that the city has today. So um, opening a, a restaurant up beside the castle was quite a gamble really because apart from June, July and August there weren't an awful lot of people went up to the castle. Um, it's changed days now but um, so I kind of took the gamble and um, fortunately it paid off. And did you, I mean, both the Witchery and Prestonfield have these amazing interiors. Is that your sort of love of the theatre? And is that what you sort of put in to make it like a unique selling Yes. Point? Well, I mean, I was working kind of around the clock at the Witchery. And when I opened the Witchery in the late 70s, I didn't have the money to kind of spend on interiors. But I'd all dance and people who had passed away. And I loved the kind of, I was always attracted to antiques and things that were old, not because of the value, just because of the... Um, the fact that somebody had crafted them well and looked after them over the years, polished them and cared for them. And um, I kind of collected old bits and pieces from old ants that died over the years. And then when I researched the history of the building at the witchery and all the witchcraft and the witch trials and things, I kind of cobbled together old bits of furniture and things and kind of in the late 70s it was all kind of suede walls and purple walls and smoked glass tables and but I couldn't afford any of that anyway so I just went down the route of researching the history and, and kind of creating the theatre, cobbling it together. And that's that's what lends itself to the name, the witchery? Yes, the, the between 1417 and 1722 there were over 500 people burned as witches in, in Scotland and it became a 
almost a public sport where the Crown and the Church were pursuing people who had the devil's mark, which could be a large nose or a wart, or it could be ladies who were practicing hippo medicine, or people who were talking to themselves, mumbling or, or whatever, just eccentrics, I suppose, at the time. And they were taken away and tortured until they confessed they were a witch. And the estate of the person went to the church and the crown, so some fairly wealthy people were also burned as witches, and, and um, it became a public sport where a, a burning would create a crowd of about 10,000 people on the on the castle hill. So I kind of researched all of that, and um, it was a period of history that I hadn't actually heard about when I was at school. It was not something we were taught at school. Uh, I think it's probably a period in history that the church were a bit embarrassed about because it was not something they wanted to, because they were their involvement in the whole trials and witch hunts. And what about Pressenfield, which is where we are just now? So when I was a student at college, I actually worked here as, um, as a banqueting student, doing events and things and weddings. And, and I also worked in the restaurant, polishing glasses and cutlery and things and just helping out. I'd always loved the place. Um, my father was in the savings bank and I first came here. He used to entertain clients here from America and things when I was a kid. And I remember at the age of five coming along to visit here and seeing the big white house and the cattle and the peacocks and being kind of quite taken by the place. But um, when I worked here, I always thought what an amazing place it was. And, you know, you're right in the centre of town, but you're surrounded by 650 acres of land and three locks and nature reserve and everything. So you actually feel you're in a country. It's like being in the middle of Central Park in New York, but you're actually, because you've got everything around about you, but you're in the country. So it's quite a unique um, location, I think. And, and the building itself was built with a lot of provost in 1687. So again, it tied in with all my love of antiques and interiors and theatre and things. So it got my imagination going, thinking, gosh, one day I'd love to buy this building. Have you completely revamped it in terms of how it looks or did it look like this at any point? Was it, you know, quite traditional or...? It was a private house from the time it was built right through until the um, 1950s, so 1680s right through to the 1950s, a private house in the same family. And um, they didn't have, in the Georgian period in the 1800s, they didn't have the money to build a big Georgian pile, so they, they added on Georgian extensions because during the Enlightenment they entertained sometimes over 1,500 people a year in the house. So they built on a, a morning room and a dining room, which would allow them to have dinners and dances and things, and sort of ballroom type thing. And they put on the pork crochet on the front to make it look grander. But because they kind of made a lot of money and lost a lot of money over the years of the death duties, lots of original features remain in the house. So it was built by the King's architect, they built Holyrood Palace, uh, Sir William Bruce. So a lot of the actual main part, this part we're in at the moment, is the leather room. So, and next door, the tapestry room are more or less in the state they were when they were built in the 1680s. And do you think it's that kind of sense of history that is what would draw people here? Because they're both relatively well-established venues within Edinburgh that's also got quite a lot of like, new things coming up. So, Yes, I think that uh, people... Some people want to come and stay in an authentic house, in a kind of lovely old historic house that's more or less the way it's always been, but also then have all the kind of modern things they'd have at home within their bedrooms. So they kind of want to have, 
you know, the televisions, all the stations, the air conditioning, the comforts they would have at home. So I think in the bedrooms, things are all discreetly hidden away so that you, when you go in, you don't think, you don't see a television, for example, or an air conditioning unit or anything that's really out of place in an old historic house. But it's all there if you want it. When you first took on the witchery, you're saying you did quite cooking, is that right? You were the chef? Yes. Well, I couldn't afford a chef, so I had done limited cooking in my outside catering. And um, I suppose um, also in the 70s, it was things like, you know, prawn cocktail. Avocado was a new thing in the 70s um, with prawns and things and um, T-bone steaks and salmon, venison. So it wasn't actually terribly challenging. It was kind of lots of grills, lots of fish, lots of fresh products, but not the kind of um, necessarily the Mission Star style food that many restaurants have today. So I could kind of manage that myself, I think, get away with it for a couple of years. Um, And so your dad wasn't really keen for you to go into hospitality, but did you have any sort of influence in your family when it came to hospitality or food and drink at all? Well, my my grandfather was a grocer in the St Cuthbert's, the co-op, so I used to visit him as a kid and it was the days before you had supermarkets, so it was kind of counter-service grocers. And I remember just going into his grocer's shop and the smells of, you know, he'd grind the coffee and he'd slice the bacon and the hams and things and the raw vegetables and just the earthiness and just all the different smells that were actually in there and the the theatre of this old-fashioned grocer's shop. And I think that kind of got me into the food side that... um, visiting him in the grocery shop and the whole theatre of it, the smells and and the kind of displays they had in those days in old-fashioned grocery shops. And it's been an interesting couple of years um, and we sort of seem to be coming out of the back of it, hopefully. Um, do you have any sort of thoughts of what you think the rest of this year might look like for hospitality? Well, I think it's the start of a new year and, you know, the pandemic, the numbers seem to be going down. People that are, that are infected by the virus don't seem to be having um, such a bad time as they were previously. So I think it's something that we're now living with. And I think it's people that now seem to be travelling more and there seem to be an, op- an optimism looking ahead that this is going to be a good year. So fingers crossed, I think people will want to travel and I think they are desperate to have a holiday. So I think we will see more, particularly American visitors and perhaps more Europeans this year, because obviously the last couple of years have been fairly disastrous for tourism. Yeah. But did you find people came here for like staycations and things like a wee sort of weekend break? We actually a lot of Edinburgh people booked in because, you know, they couldn't go away to Dubai or America or Florida or wherever for their birthdays anniversary. They just wanted to get out of the house and actually come for a few days and just stay in a hotel and enjoy themselves and be pampered and get out the four walls that they had in, at home and have a holiday and a break. So lots of people from Scotland and Edinburgh and um, and the UK. So we've actually been very fortunate when we have opened that we've been well supported by our customers. Well, the witchery is billed as quite a romantic hotel, but it's, it's very nice here as well for like a couple's break is that would you agree that this is the, the both of them are quite good for a nice romantic breakaway yes i mean it, i've always been a hopeless romantic myself and um never very good in romance but uh, i think uh, creating the actual atmosphere for other people i love you know 
with I think because we are all candle lit as well, so the witchery is almost entirely candle lit all year round. Um, that in itself gives a romance, but all the artifacts, the buildings, the setting beside the castle, and here the, just the ambience of the rooms and orchids and the various plants and things we have around the build. Do you have any plans for the future in terms of would you open up any other venues or are you quite happy to just continue with the ex- excellence of the witchery in Preston Fields? I think if the right thing came along but um, it's, it's because I kind of throw myself into these things and it's almost like giving birth so you know I created the witchery from nothing. Um, now Preston Field was here um, but it needed a lot of tender love and care um, to actually recreate and reinvent and um, it so it's I would never say never uh, if the right thing came along but it'd have to be something that was kind of I could really get my teeth into and again in terms of my stage design and all my I, I've still got a lot to do here and at the witchery because there's probably another suite I'll be creating at the witchery and planning at the moment and and because the buildings are old and you know, there's always refurbishment going on. So we're changing fabrics, I'm changing rooms, I'm changing carpets, I'm doing lighting and everything else. So there's always things to do. But if another property came up that um, really caught my eye, then I might be tempted. I'd never say never. Nice. <laughs> um, and the suite of the witchery, is that, is that one that already exists? Because obviously the building's quite old. Are you, are you changing things around or can you kind of create new things from what you already have? Well, I have the top floor above the witchery which was my office and was going to be my home but uh, and it has uh, over the years I've knocked a window which looks up towards Edinburgh Castle and and I've got another window down the Royal Mile and you can see right down to the to Berwick Law on a clear day over to Fife and to the Pentland so it gets 360 degree views of the city and that's probably it's going to become a new suite so I'm kind of working on that at the moment because I have an apartment here and I also have a little cottage down in East Lothian, so I tend not to, I probably don't use it very much in terms of staying there, so mm. lots of other people want to stay there, so I'll probably move out and um, let others move in. So there's always things happening and um, enough to keep me busy and out of mischief. <laughs> um, and so we've talked a little bit about um, staycations. Where's your favourite place in Scotland to stay and eat? So whether that's the same place or two separate places, where would you go and visit? Well, I've all, I mean, I stay in East Lothian because I love the sea because I'm a Cancerian. So I was very lucky during lockdown that I could actually walk along the beaches and over the golf courses that were closed. And and I just um, love the sea and the coast. I love going over to Sky and I love the Three Chimneys and um, just getting away from, you know, getting back to nature and the mountains and the but I quite like to be near the coast and the sea or near water, being a Cancerian. Um, so even in a loch and a some spoil for choice in Scotland, really. And there's so many wonderful places that I'm really looking forward to getting back and getting some time to actually travel around Scotland again. Because, But as I say, I have been very fortunate to, to live in God's own county of East Lothian. How how would you say the hospitality scene in Edinburgh has changed over the years of you having venues here? Well, hospitality, I mean, when I started, it was 10 o'clock licensing hours and you couldn't get a drink on a Sunday. We didn't have a conference centre, we didn't have all the theatres and 
wonderful galleries and museums that the city has now and the tourism industry was really three months a year. Hogmanay was going down to the Tron and hearing the bells and then going home and everything shut for six days. Whereas now we've got Christmas, fe- I mean, it's a festival city, obviously, Edinburgh now. We've got so many festivals, from sign festivals, comedy festivals, television festivals, food festivals. So there's always something outside the pandemic happening, and hopefully that will all happen again soon. Um, and again, the I think outside London, we have the, the widest range of restaurants of different cuisines, um, which is amazing and at all levels, um, from street food right up to, um, I think we have four or five Michelin star restaurants now in the city, so which is amazing for the amount of, for the size of the population. Um, the whole industry has changed in terms of better working conditions, people are really, there's much more of a career structure, people opening their own places or working in We've got all these international hotels now, groups that are open and more coming. So the city, I think, is in quite a positive place for tourism in the future. And I think also it's now the range of shops we have. I know it's retail's been difficult, but we do have um, quite a good range of shops and museums and galleries and things happening in the city for everyone. And what would you say are the challenges and what advice would you give someone who's kind of starting out now in hospitality, like with a business owner in Edinburgh? I think one of my, um, I was fortunate at the time, I, I did push the boat out when I was 20, but I actually managed to buy my property at the witchery. Um, and that's been a good thing for me because rents in the city and leases, it's so difficult now to get freehold properties. And... Um, because I had the freehold property, which has increased in value over the years, and it's allowed me to to kind of borrow against that and to help to build my dreams and help me to buy Prestonfield. But I think it's really quite tricky now because there are so many leasehold properties, and once you make a success of your business, people put the rent up, and you end up maybe having to move. Or so it's. I think if you can. If you can try and find a, a freehold property, it's quite a good thing in the city. But um, And just perseverance and hard work. You know, it doesn't come, no business really, nothing comes in a silver platter. You've really got to work at it and have a passion for what you're doing and throw yourself into it. So it just doesn't happen um, overnight. Just before we finished up the interview, I asked James whether his father ever came around to his way of thinking. I think so, yes. I mean... I had an old aunt who always asked me if I was going to get a proper job <laughs> every Christmas. But uh, I think uh, he lived long enough to see me buy Prestonfield and I think he was quietly proud, but it's a kind of very Scottish thing. He never kind of, you know, I don't know. I think he was quietly proud. Mm. Um, and the final part of the podcast is um, a quick fire round, five questions all to do with food. If, if that's okay, tell me the first thing that comes into your head. Oh God, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> I always get in a muddle about these. Anyway, carry on. See how we go. Right. Uh, right. Whenever I'm hungry, I think of. I love really good bread. The smell of bread, just so I'm hopeless because I once worked in a baker's shop. I kind of just love this. 
did you eat all the bread there? I probably did. I certainly ate <laughs> all the cakes. <laughs> uh, comfort food for me is? Liver and bacon. My favourite childhood dessert is? Knickerbocker Glory. My food heaven is? Seafood. And my food hell is? Tripe. Thank you very much. You're not the, you're not the first person to say tripe. <laughs> it's a My father used to love tripe and mother used to cook it for him and just the smell of it cooking and boiling away. I couldn't even taste it. And the texture and the look of it just turns my stomach. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks to James for being my guest and thanks to you for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Scran is a laudable podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.